breaking things left and right up here. Pray with me just one more time. Lord, I pray that as we begin today that you would be with me, that you would break me of self and that your words would shine through today. We ask these things in the saving name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Welcome to Tim's auto mechanic wonderings. Um, I was driving around this week and finally had a realization as I felt kind of compelled, like, oh, here's another illustration I could use about my car and what's going wrong with it. Um, I realized that it has, I was like, oh, yeah, it's got 362,000 miles on it. Stuff is going to start to break. Weird little stuff, you know, not your normal things like timing belts or whatever like that. Um, Weird stuff is going to start to break. And so today I wanted to share um, what I've come to realize has broken on it here recently. Um, It's actually been several months that I've been figuring this out. There is a device, as I was sitting through the hot August days in my car, thinking that my air conditioner just wasn't working hard enough. I mean, it was comfortable. I could get by. It wasn't like dripping sweat, sort of an AC not working. But it was just like, where's that like biting cold on that hot August day where it just feels like, okay, the AC's kicking. It's going to cool this thing down. Pretty soon I'm going to be a little chilly and it'll be great. But it just, it wouldn't do that. I was like, okay, my AC's broken. I'm going to have to get that fixed. As winter came, I realized that it was like, criminy, why isn't my heater working? What, what, what is wrong with this car? And, and the engine works, therefore the heater has to work because that's where the heat comes from. So it has to work. And I kept thinking like, what is the problem? What is the deal? And I went to YouTube University as our uh, secretary loves to call it. Deb refers to it all the time. I went to YouTube University and tried to think of all the ways that I could possibly communicate to the computer and to the internet at large, what my problem was. I wanted to use words like thermostat. But in a car, thermostat means something that has nothing to do with what my issue was. So I had to come up with creative ways. And I finally learned that my cabin temperature blend motor is broken. It is stuck, and whatever the little flap is that that moves is not moving. So I have no control over the blend of the temperature in my car. And therefore, I'm a little bit sweaty in the summer and freezing cold in the winter. Let me tell you about this morning. It was cold. Ice was on my car. And I'm taking 40-degree air and saying, Lord, let this warm me as I'm driving around. I am not getting the perfect blend. Now, I realize some of you, your mouths may fill with saliva because when I talk about the perfect blend, it means something different to you, um, you coffee lovers and whatnot. I am not talking about that today. I am talking about something else. But I've realized that my blend motor in my car is not working. Therefore, I cannot control the temperature. It is just steady as it can be and cold, freezing 
cold. And if it weren't for the seat warmers, I would have a new car. Um, so that's on my bucket list, not my bucket list, my to-do list um, for this next week or two. Fixed the blend motor. The perfect blend. It is important that we have things in proportion, that we have things blended together. And as we have been spending time looking over the last about six or seven weeks at the letters of John, we have arrived at the last day. Today we conclude our journey through the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And today we will be unpacking what we can from 3rd John. Now, if you recall, I think a couple weeks ago, so Pastor Walt was talking about his desire to maybe even skip these because they're so short. And I opened my mouth. I opened my mouth. And I said, well, they're there for a reason. And so here I was, struggling to find gems in the shortest book in the Greek New Testament. Third John has 219 words. I did not count them. Uh, somebody else did, and then I forgot, and then I Googled, and Google knew the answer. 219 Greek words make up the letter of Third John, the shortest book in the whole Bible, the shortest book in the Greek New Testament. And here we are in the book of Third John, wrapping up this journey as we have looked at the message that John has had, dealing with the issues that were out there in the early church, those at um, those in his in his sphere, I was going to say at Corinth, so I got a little hung up on that. This is not Corinthians. But those in his sphere and his influence who were getting caught up in that Gnostic gospel that was going out there, that Jesus wasn't really Jesus and all of that. And we've talked about that a lot over these last six weeks. They were being taught something. And so John has met that head on. And you will recall that six or seven weeks ago, we made the statement that the real Jesus has real solutions for our real problems. And I still believe that is true. And I believe that in the book of 3 John, 2 John and 3 John, both of them, you start to see how John is addressing the real issues that are facing the church of his day and providing real solutions So I want you to journey with me because what I found, while there is only 219 words, I thought it might be fun to give a sermon that was only 219 words, but then I would be already done. And what fun would that be? But as I unpacked this, as I read it over and over, because that's only 14 verses long, as I read it over and over and over, little nuggets began to appear. And even though we wanted to just breeze over this, even though it's only 219 words, I'm not going to cover the whole book today because there's that much in it that can be looked at. And I am convinced that Third John presents a lot of practical, current-day advice that we can find there. So we are going to look at that as we go to the book of Third John. I want to share something about just Scripture in general. I was reading a book uh, this last year at some point, and it had this statement that when we preach 
when we're talking, trying to teach people, we should like stick to that book. It had this suggestion, we should stick to this book and we should kind of, you know, just stay there because that's the complete thought. And I don't disagree with that per se. However, Scripture is unique because it is 100% written by humans. It is humans using human words to communicate human thoughts in a current human situation. Filled. Uh, Walt gave Walt gave my uh, conjunction there. But it is filled, motivated by the Holy Spirit. And so the Bible presents a complete picture, individual things to individual specific situations that present a complete picture of God's word for us. That is powerful, that is meaningful, that is practical, that is worthy of our study. And so as we open the book of Third John, we're going to start in Ephesians. All right, here we go. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 says this, Rather, there's a lot of stuff that comes before this that's talking about Jesus Christ. It's making a case for who Jesus Christ is. Rather, speaking the truth in love. The what? In what? The truth in love. The perfect blend, truth and love. We are to grow up. Man, my parents, my parents must be sitting somewhere and say, yes, preach, son, preach. How many times have I heard that? We are to grow up in every way. Let that sink in a little bit. I don't want to grow up in some ways. There are some ways that I want to act like a child each and every day. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head that is into Christ. Speaking the truth in love. Paul presents the perfect blend. Starbucks is going to owe me um, some money when you all have to go get Starbucks later on this week because I've talked about the blend so much. But anyway, okay. The perfect blend of truth and love. We see that in the books of 1 John. And if you've been here, in the letters of John, and if you've been here, you've heard these words, truth and love, thrown about. We have talked about them a lot because John talks about them a lot. And so I want you to keep that in mind as we look at the book of 3 John. So we're going to dive right into the real problem that was right there in the church that John was dealing with. So if you go with me to the book of 3 John, it is about half a page potentially in your Bible um, near the very end. Start, find Revelation and just work backwards. Um, in this Bible, 2nd and 3rd John almost fit on one page by themselves. And they would if the, anyway, it doesn't matter. I digress. 3 John, verse 9. So I wrote to the church. This is John speaking. I wrote to the church, but... Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive it, does not receive us. 
So John is saying, I've written a letter to the church, but there is a gentleman named Diotrephes, and I will say that differently every time, and you will be okay with it, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Verse 10, therefore, if I come, which is kind of a way of saying I'm going to come, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does. Prating, ooh, what a word. Prating, speaking evil words. Prating against us with malicious words. So this is what Diotrephes is doing in the church. He is prating against people. He is speaking malicious words against people and not content with that. Ooh. Not only is he speaking word, evil words, it's not enough. He's not content with that. He himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to those who want to receive the brethren, Diotrephes is saying, um, no. In fact, to the point where he says, if you receive these brethren, these strangers, these missionaries coming in, if you receive them, if you are hospitable, I'm going to kick you out of the church. That's what it says. Forbids those who wish to be hospitable, putting them out of the church. Some of your versions back in verse 9 will say Diotrephes who likes to be first. This preeminence, he wants to be first. He wants to be the head honcho. Now, I know as I'm painting this picture that all of our minds are saying, "Mm, yes, preach, because I know someone who needs to hear this. We all have been around someone who seems like they want to be the head honcho. We've heard horror stories of churches where one person seems like they can be the person to come in. And you all are sitting there thinking, yes, come on. I hope that you tell them and put them in their place. Just hold on a second because the other people are thinking of you. Okay, so let's just start there. Let's start there and ask ourselves, when do I fall into these traps? So do not be thinking of the other person who seems to be a cohort with Diotrephes. Uh, Be thinking about when am I stepping into the place of Christ? Because those who love to have the preeminence. I chose the New New King James Version because there was a connection with this word preeminence. To be first. This isn't just somebody who kind of wants to be in charge. This is somebody who's making themselves preeminent. Remember, Scripture teaches Scripture. Another small letter that we want to go check out real quick. I'll put it on the screen. Is Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. So check this out. Colossians chapter 1. And he is the head of the body of the church. This is talking about Jesus. Again, here is Paul trying to make a case for who Jesus is, 
that Jesus is in fact God, that Jesus the man is Jesus the God. He is part of the Godhead because Paul's fighting the same Gnostic issues as well. This was a common thing. We don't use the same terms today, but this idea is still very prevalent in our culture today and in our churches today, this idea. But here is Paul trying to make the case of who Christ is. He is the head of the body, the church. Okay? Who is the beginning? The firstborn from the dead. That in all things, he may have the preeminence. That who? Jesus may have the what? That Jesus may have the preeminence. When we try to put ourselves in preeminent places, tread carefully. Because what John is saying, what John is saying about this gentleman, Diotrephes, is that he is placing himself in the place of Christ. The qualifications for being the preeminent one. Who is the beginning? That's not a question, that is a statement. Jesus is the beginning. Paul makes it clear. Scripture makes it clear. John makes it clear in his gospel that in the beginning was the Word. Jesus is the beginning. And from the beginning comes everything else. From the beginning comes everything else. And if you are responsible for that, that is qualification number one to having preeminence. Being from the beginning. Being creator. Sometimes I think we put the creator aspect into just talking about creation, but just not forgetting, or forgetting is what I meant to say, we forget that being the creator is infinitely more than just being a creator. He, Jesus, is the beginning. He is the mastermind of all of this. He is the one who spoke it into being. He is creator. He is worthy of preeminence. Qualification number two, Firstborn from the dead. So not only is he creator who created this world, who created us to be in relationship with him, who did not create the sin issue that was brought about by Lucifer, by Satan. But then, because he's creator and because he wanted that relationship, Jesus as firstborn of the dead, said, I am the one who is going to fix your problem. Your problem. Your sinfulness. It's Christ saying that I have the solution for that. I'm going to come and die the death. I'm going to come and die the death that you deserve. But it does not stop there. If it stopped there, the story is stupid. It does not stop there. Jesus did not just die for us. He was raised back to life for us. He is firstborn from the dead, showing that he has victory. And if you can claim to have both of those things, those are two qualifications 
of being preeminent in the church, to be the head of the body, the church. Jesus meets those qualifications. And so, Diotrephes, in this moment where he is saying malicious and evil things about the missionaries, about people in his church, where he is controlling what is happening, where he is choosing who gets to be a part of the church and who does not get to be a part of the church. He is taking the place of Christ. Now, all of those people that we were thinking of earlier who maybe have overstepped their bounds or gotten a little bit out of line or had some leadership that was maybe not worthy, I feel fairly convinced that none of them were trying to take it to this level. But we need to be watchful. We need to be making sure that we are following the model of Jesus. You see, because when Jesus came down to the earth, Jesus took the presumed model and turned it upside down because the creator, the creator of the universe, knelt down at his disciples' feet, washed them, took on the role of a servant. Jesus took the paradigm and turned it upside down and said, no, this is a servant paradigm. To be first, you must be a servant. We can forget sometimes to have that attitude in our lives. In the church or outside of the church, we sometimes get focused on self. And John here is writing to a church member, is writing to them saying, we need to watch out for this individual. We need to be watchful. We need to understand what is happening. And it needs to be dealt with. Another solution to a real problem. John is talking about how to address conflict within a church. John is talking about how to address disagreements, how to approach somebody and speak to them in truth and love. It is this amazing blend that John is presenting to us that is the true meaning of the gospel that Christ brought, the true meaning of what they've been taught, that we should know the truth. Jesus is the truth. And we should know love because Jesus is love. He has shown love by laying down his life. He has blended truth and love together to be this amazing thing. John 3, 3 John, verse 3. The truth that is in you. 3 John seems to be kind of focused on the truth side of things. Because he's, this, this verse here is referencing Gaius. Or, or, or Jaius, however you would say his name. I looked it up and practiced it, and that's the best you're going to get. But Gaius, 
the beloved disciple that John is writing to is being referenced that the truth is in you. When we are following Christ, when we are truly being a disciple of Christ, the truth will be in us. We will not have the truth. The truth will be in us. It is more than just carrying around knowing the truth, knowing the way to defend the 28 fundamental beliefs or whatever it might be. We can know how to defend without knowing who we are defending. We need to know Jesus, to have the truth be in us. In 2 John, writing to the lady, not named, but the lady, writing to her, he's reminding them of the command that's come from Jesus that he's shared in 1 John, that we love one another. Truth and love combined. It needs to be the perfect blend. The answer to the real problem of dissension in the church, the answer to the real problem of one individual ruining a church is going to be found in the perfect blend of truth and love. And we have to have both. We have to have both truth and love. Some of you out there may be saying, yes, pastor, preach about truth. We need more truth. I tell you, don't forget to have the love. There may be some of you out there saying, yes, preacher, preach the love of God. Don't forget to have the truth. It is a perfect blend where the two come together and make this amazing gospel of Jesus coming down, of Jesus being here, that make this gospel that not is just filled with, okay, I'm set free from my sin. It's filled with power, life-changing grace that enters into my life through the Holy Spirit and will begin to change me from the inside out. A process that begins each and every day when I say, Lord, today, help me to follow you. The truth and love mixed together. Truth and love have to be blended. They have to be combined. Love without truth is sentimentalism. Love without truth is fairy tale. If you try to build a theology, to build a Christian life, just basing it on love, it is going to be directionless. It is going to be just based on sentimental emotions. I was reading um, a book kind of talking about this, and it referenced the fact that emotions, intense emotions that we love to feel and are powerful. And don't get me wrong, emotions are great, and God has given us emotions. They are good. But if we only focus on them, they become bad. But intense emotion, if that is what a church is based on, it's going to be directionless. It's going to 
waffle around. It is going to not be able to answer the questions that we have. Because the questions that we have, the questions that we want to throw out to God, God has given us answers to those. But if we do not combine truth with love, love is just sentimentalism. If we don't combine truth without love, or if truth without love is dogmatism. It is just saying I am right because that's how it is. And in the books of 2 John and 3 John, you see both of these things happening. In 3 John with Diotrephes, he is there hammering down on truth, saying I am going to defend the truth and we are going to be going in our direction and the truth and nobody's going to get in. Nobody's going to break down these walls. Nobody's going to come in and and infiltrate our church. We're going to be dishospitable to everyone. Truth without love. In 2 John, if you remember, the issue is, is they're saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Be careful. There are people out there who are teaching a false gospel, this Gnostic gospel that Jesus wasn't really Jesus and or God and all of this stuff. And in 2 John, his warning is, listen, be sure that you are in love standing on the truth and are not letting these false prophets in. 2 John is about keeping people out. 3 John is about letting people in. And this is where we need Jesus because I'm hearing myself say that. And I'm like, well, what in the world? What are you trying to say? What are you, what are you trying to say that the Bible saying? How can we do that? How can I both keep people out and let people in? And the truth, the answer to that is only by the grace of God. Only with Jesus as the, having the preeminent place in our church and in our lives. Will we, will we be, have any hope of determining who should be kept out and who should be welcomed in with open arms? These are the real problems that John is addressing. This is the solution that he's giving. Truth and love combined in a perfect blend. All right. This right here is a Hobie Holder 14. This is the sailboat, not the actual one. This is a picture from the internet. But that sailboat is the one that I first learned to sail back in 1993 at Broken Arrow Ranch in Manhattan, Kansas. That was the first, I like the woo. That was that was a boat that I first was said, here, take this out. And I did, and it was awesome. And by the second time taking it out, I learned to take girls with me. It was fantastic. <laughs> this sailboat was great. Uh, man, I had a lot of fun in this little sailboat. But this sailboat, as I was thinking this week, this sailboat presents the perfect example of a combination of truth and love. If you look 
closely at this sailboat, you will notice that it is pulled right up on the beach. The bottom is almost flat. What you don't see in that boat, and what is clearly not there right at that moment in time, is this five-foot chunk of wood that's the centerboard. So when you would, when I was learning to sail this, and you were coming in to shore in a shallow, in the shallow lake I was learning to sail in, I was always aiming about a hundred feet upwind of where I wanted to end up, because as you began to take the centerboard out, the sailboat instead of kind of going forward began to just slide sideways. And you would take it out and leave it as much in as you could until maybe it would drag on the bottom, then you pull a little more out. But you would just drift sideways. Truth and love combined together. If you take the truth out of love, you will have a beautiful sailboat. And that sailboat is beautiful. I love it. The sails are awesome. The pristine whiteness of the boat, it's amazing. It's beautiful. But without truth, it is going to just be drifting along aimlessly, not getting anywhere close to a goal that you have set. Take that same boat out into the middle of the lake, lower the sails, but leave the centerboard in, and you're going to drift the exact same way. You're just going to be pushed by whichever breeze or waves, whatever that, what's happening, you're just going to be pushed along the same way you would if you had the sails up. To sail this boat, you need both the sails and the centerboard. In our Christian walk, John is telling us that we need both truth and love. And a perfect blend. It is that perfect blend of truth and love that will meet the problems that we face both in the church and in our daily lives. And I'm not just trying to... I believe this. I believe this. Do I practice it all the time? No. But I believe it. And each day I'm working to be better at combining truth and love together. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We are not called to take the place of Christ, but we are called to become as much like him as we possibly can. And we can do that as we combine truth and love together. Our challenge is to always keep Grace Point as a church filled with truth and love. The challenge is to keep our lives filled with truth and love in that perfect blend. God's perfect blend given to us by his grace alone. Lord, we have enjoyed this journey 
And as we have been challenged by John to know that you are real, to know that you have answers, Lord, I pray that we would always be putting you in the preeminent spot. Be always putting you first in our lives. Lord, I pray that we will be a church, that we will be people who shine the light of Jesus in truth and love. We ask these things in his saving name, the saving name of Jesus. Amen.